Out on an Island LGBTQ plus oral histories on the Isle of Wight from coming out stories to going out memories what is it really like to be out on an island Out on an Island is an oral history project by Stone Crabs Theatre supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund Hello I'm your host, Gary Fairhall. In today's podcast, Bronwyn Hamilton-Brown interviews Julian Clark. Julian talks candidly about gender identity journey, the prejudices faced within the music industry, and the importance of transgender awareness. Um, my name is Bronwyn Hamilton-Brown, and it's the 9th of December at 20 past 11. Um, thank you for coming along. First of all, um, I'd like to ask you, before we start, um, how do you identify? I identify at the moment as non-binary, but really I'm trans, but I'm trans, um, but I haven't transitioned. And that's because basically I was given a lot of bad advice when I was younger that I shouldn't and that it was something that didn't really exist and that I'd get over it. So I've lived in denial for most of my life about being trans, but really I should have been um, female to male. And how's that affected you? Um, I think I just feel very disappointed because I listened to a lot of people who I believed um, knew better than what I did. Um, Because I remember going to my doctor when I was about 13, 14, and saying that I should have been a boy and I didn't really know what the words were whether it was transgender or transsexual or whatever because nobody ever talked about it. I did know vaguely about people having gender reassignments but um, it was always kind of treated as a joke but um, it was always a little bit more acceptable for girls to be tomboys and boys to be sissy boys so I thought you know it would be okay but um, my doctor basically said um, oh you're a pretty girl and just go and get on with your life and don't talk such rubbish and um, it was the same with my school counsellor who I tried to talk to and um, I don't know if he thought this was the cure or what it was but he said oh you'll have a baby in a few years and you'll forget you ever said it so I just sort of felt like those were people who were older men who I should have been listening to but I think um, it turns out I was right and they were wrong. So in terms of um, your, 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 your lack of doing what you wanted to do and what you felt that you needed to do, how did your family and friends support or not support you? Um, my immediate family um, my mum and dad were very very conservative and my mum had had a lot of influence from a very fundamentalist Christian sect my father um, although he wasn't a Christian he was um, very traditionalist and he basically thought it was a lot of rubbish but um, my mum had a lot of expectations for me um, 
to get married and have kids and give her grandchildren and bring her home a nice son-in-law and um, because I was an only child I kind of expect I was kind of expected to be the person who would fulfill that role but I put a lot of pressure on myself thinking I'm going to have to do this and I didn't really want to but I always thought I had a lot of belief I think in the idea about hormones and um, you know when you when you meet the right man you'll suddenly want to have kids and you'll suddenly want to do this or do that and I waited a very long time sort of believing in this kind of um, I don't know biological determinism I think I just sort of believed oh well um, you'll get um, your biological clock will kick in and you'll want to do it and it didn't and I didn't really understand you know that I didn't really feel I, I never actually felt any um, sexual attraction to men um, or anyone really and I didn't even know that you could be asexual but I think you know it's one of those things nobody ever talked about because it's always been kind of assumed that if you don't have any sexual desire you must be ill or you must have a vitamin deficiency or a hormone deficiency and you're kind of um, obliged to have a relationship and have a sexual relationship with someone and the sex part of the relationship becomes something that you do even if it's out of duty and um, I think that with mum I don't think she ever ever really had a very happy sex life but she was of the sort of traditional um, mindset that that is something that you do in a relationship and if you get married you marry a man and you um, pay your dues and the sex part of it is just something you have to do in order to sort of maintain the maintain the status quo so um I did always believe what other people said oh one day somebody's going to come along and they're going to sweep you off your feet and you're going to um, um, want to have a baby and you're going to want to you know do this or you know have somebody come and um, make a woman of you and you'll you know it'll be great and you'll be happy and you'll sort of have a husband and 2.4 kids and everything will be great but that didn't happen because basically these are the sort of belief in your biological clock and hormones and that um and meeting the right man just wasn't going to happen so you had <coughs> pressure from your parents to conform into the normal female role which was perpetrated by them you know, or, or was sort of played out by them. But in terms of your your friends, did did you have the same? I same think, same yeah. sort of treatment. I, when I think about friends at school and that, I think that there was a lot of sort of. Um, there was a lot of pressure as a teenager to sort of have pinups of pop stars and things like that, and. 
I think I realised that I did feel different because I didn't really feel like I was sexually attracted to pop stars. <coughs> and I think, you know, if I did find somebody attractive, it was more like that I wanted to be like them than that I wanted to sleep with them. So I didn't, up to a point, I think people did think that I sort of got the pop star thing. But um, I was more interested in some of the sort of more um, androgynous characters. Um, like David Bowie and Peter Gabriel when he was young and people like that and I never actually found anyone um, sexually attractive I think you know in when I was at school um, everybody liked um, Bross and AHA and I think Curiosity Killed the Cat and bands like that but um, I think I could appreciate the music, but I wasn't really, I didn't really see them as being pin-ups. So how did that make you feel? Um, I didn't, I didn't know that, I, I didn't actually know that other people felt differently. It didn't really make me feel anything because I didn't really understand that other people felt differently to me. I thought that everybody sort of felt the same way and it wasn't until later that I realised that they didn't. So you felt that people were fans of Bross or Curiosity Killed the Cat because of the sexual attraction, because they were good-looking men. You thought that that was, that was perhaps their attraction and it was based on sexuality. Um, no, I don't, think I, I don't think that I really understood that it was that. I think, um, I think I just sort of thought it was about the music more than anything. But um, no, it's a bit weird really because I did, as I said, I always thought that I would um, get to puberty and then start being boy crazy and it didn't happen. So your life on the Isle of Wight, you've lived on the Isle of Wight all your life, so tell me about your life and how, how it's been really. Um, well I, as I said, I was brought up by parents that were um, very traditionalist but my father was a bully and part of this I think maybe I wasn't really given a very good um, role model insofar as um, heterosexual relationships went because it always seemed to be that my mum was very cowed and very um, bullied by my dad and I never saw anything that was very desirable in such a uneven, um, coercive relationship. And I know that she was desperately unhappy with him, but she didn't believe in divorce. And um, I, and my, me and my mum suffered a lot with my dad because even though he was pretty well off, he made us live as if it was after the Second World War. And um, I don't think, you know, because I was an only child, a lot of people used to think that I was very spoiled because it's what everybody takes for granted. Oh, if you're only child, you're spoiled. But that wasn't the case. I didn't have the things that other kids had. Um, I didn't even go on family holidays or anything. And everything was always about my dad, what he wanted and what he wanted to do. And um, 
he never really had any interest in me or my mum. Um, not as not as people, and I don't know whether he was disappointed with me or not. I I don't know. I think he would have rather had a son. Um, because I think by his actions and even like thinking about him sort of since he passed, um, he really, really didn't like women. Um, and that's why my mum didn't drive, he didn't want me to drive, he didn't want my mum to have a phone or anything like that. But he really, really didn't like women. Um, I think he just saw women as being a convenience and um, I don't know, I, I kind of think he was disappointed with me anyway, so, yeah. So do you think there's anything in in your upbringing in terms of how your dad envisaged um, his family, you know, being not as worthy as him, is, is you know, the, what I'm getting from this. Mm. Do you think that had any sort of influence in, in how you felt that you wanted to be or you felt that you were, you were, you were sort of mis... I don't know, miscategorised? Um, no, I think I've tried to sort of think about this before, whether, whether my immediate upbringing had any influence on my gender or my sexuality, but I don't actually think it did. I just think it, I felt it more, because if I had been a woman, I think I would have really sort of fought for being a woman and fought for being a feminist and a, tried to be a sort of um, more... Um, enlightened and um, stronger woman, um, which is what I wanted my mum to be, but she, she wasn't. She was very um, timid. Um, but when I was younger, I was supposed to be a gifted child, and I always was interested in sort of technical things. And, um, you know, I went to college and did electronics, and I was the only person, quote unquote, female. Um, on on the course and I I really think that it would have been a whole lot better for myself and basically for everybody else if I'd have if I had have been a boy because um, you can't really choose what your skills are and what your interests are so you know I, even when I was little I never was really interested in girly stuff or being girly and if you'd have asked me when I was little, when I was about four or five, I wouldn't have even said I identified as a girl. I would have probably said I identified as a cat. <laughs> so <clears throat> did you have any other good role models, male role models? No. You didn't? No. So you didn't necessarily know what type of man you wanted to be or have any, any, sort, of, any sort of blueprint of... No, I think it was more just like from music and things like that because um, I was always into music and I wanted to be a music producer and a record producer, but I didn't. It didn't really occur to me when I was younger because I used to. I got into listening to a lot of progressive rock, um, which is I got from a friend because um, my dad never listened to any music. He wasn't into music at all. He, he he was um, very unmusical, um, so I didn't really get any musical influences from family. But I, most of the music that I got into that was sort of like classic rock and um, progressive rock and things like that. Plus, I was very um, 
interested in being a record producer and my heroes then were Stock Aitken and Waterman because they were I was more interested in them than what I was the acts that they produced but I it wasn't until later that I sort of realized that that music scene was something that being a female I couldn't have um, because I all my heroes and role models and musicians were all men and even when I started playing the guitar and started um, learning um, music skills and that when I was probably about 13 or 14 as well um, I wanted to look for female role models and I kind of ex really wanted there to be female role models but I was really so disheartened because out of all the music that I liked and out of all the artists that I liked there were you know enough women that you could count on one hand basically and it made me feel really bad and it still does really because I lost hope in doing this as any sort of career because even when I was looking for bands or groups or things that I could do I knew that the majority wouldn't want me anyway and this was really obvious I think when I started um, playing drums and I started playing guitar and that and I, I used to think oh I'd really like to join a band but then I did actually know damn well that because I was a female people wouldn't want me and I always sort of hoped that people wouldn't notice that I was a female and that just sounds really stupid because it's so obvious and it's the first thing anybody notices about someone but um, I the women who were in music had to be a certain way and behave a certain way and dress a certain way and all my musical role models were men so in the end I just sort of felt like it wasn't worth the wasn't worth the effort so I was just really really disappointed about that and um, once um, once I went to university I went to university to do music production music technology and um, once I got there I found that it was the old boys club basically and I wasn't going to get anywhere um, within the old boys club um, I ended up um, moving to doing opera and this sounds a little bit weird but the reason why I changed to doing opera is because that was one of the only um, art forms that I found that female students could get any respect or any kudos in and um, so I yeah, I did this, I did a lot of training and that, and I went down a path which I probably shouldn't have done. Um, but I felt like I had to really overcompensate and try and be really, really um, hyper-feminine. And um, during this time, I was the person who um, I was struggling with a mixture of the sort of gender identity and elitism. 
So I found that I was going to dress agencies and buying all these dresses and stilettos and things like that and dressing up and really making a big show of it, a big show of like being a um, diva or something. But it was, um, I didn't really understand at the time, but I think, you know, I thought that if I had to be a woman, I could at least try and make a success of being a woman. And it was always in the back of my mind that I was fake and that I was doing something that was a bit um, insincere. So, in terms of barriers, you saw barriers in your chosen profession and you tried to overcome those barriers, but you felt thwarted. Mm. Am I right? Yeah. And then, so you tried a different different angle and because of that angle being, you know, to be, you, you needed to be sort of truly feminine, you mm. tried that. Mm. So did you have any successes? Is there, is there anything that, you know, you felt that you'd, you'd really sort of pushed through and, and succeeded in? Yeah, I mean, yes, I did, because I did, did my music degree and I did my um, um, FVCM, that's a fellowship diploma at um, Victoria College. I did an opera and I actually did really, really well at it. But I, a few years ago, I just really had to sort of think about it and I thought, well, this I've gone down a path now which isn't working and I feel really uncomfortable about it. And um, a lot of it was to do with the gender um, presentation and the sort of femininity of it that I felt, you know, I've gone down a path which I've actually done pretty well at but it is so far away from what I originally intended to do. You know, I, I've chucked everything on the back burner by the wayside because I gave, gave up like, playing drums and guitar and doing the music tech and production and that to go down this very sort of narrow path where even though I did really well at it, it was, um, I still felt like I was faking it and that I was being, um, I wasn't being authentic and I think you know I really really hoped that I could be like some of the other sort of diva sort of um, characters but with me it just seemed to be an act it didn't seem to be um, genuine and you know as a little bit of an aside to this um, I did get sucked into some of the sort of odd things, you know, me too sort of things. I did get groomed by a master's student at university. I did get coerced into doing topless photos because it was meant to help my career. And all that sort of stuff, you just sort of expect as a female, you're just expected to sort of take it as part and parcel of that um, part of the music scene, but that doesn't make it normal. It's just been it's just been normalised. So <clears throat> things haven't been all bad. You've you've had successes, but you've you know you yeah, decided. Yeah, they kind of yeah they're kind of hollow successes because they've been successes at something which I probably shouldn't have been doing in the first place, if that makes sense. Because mm. um, now I've had to sort of think you know I. 
I'm in a little bit of a grey area now with music because I want to go back like to a fallow going. period yeah I want to yeah, I feel very very disappointed with music and the thing that I thought that I wanted to do you know I thought I was going to be standing up somewhere singing and wearing a big dress and that and I you know and I probably could have done it and it wasn't just a case of um uh, there was a lot of elitism and there was a lot of money but it was me that I always felt wrong about it because it wasn't what I was supposed to do, it wasn't authentic. And now I feel like I don't even care if I never sing an operatic aria ever again. And, you know, that's for several reasons. I don't like the way that opera treats its female characters. I don't like the preoccupation with suicide and that nearly every opera ends with suicide. And um, I lost a friend back in April by suicide. And I think, you know, that, you know, an art form which glamorises it is very unhealthy. Um, but I would like to be able to go back to doing music technology and music production. But, um, you know, one of the things um, that's disappointed me about that is because I've been judged by my gender and I've, I have experienced something which I didn't even know the name for this, it's, it's called um, um, stereotype threat and um, you know, basically when I went to university um, I was very confident about my skills in music technology and as a producer and that but I was really undermined by the um, male-dominated um, environment and I ended up feeling like oh I'm a silly little girl and I can't do this and so even if I went to university with a lot of confidence in my abilities I left thinking you know really thinking that other people were better skilled and superior to me and actually thinking that there was something really wrong with me that I couldn't do this just because of my gender and there's a lot of people who will you know use the um, lack of representation lack of visibility of women in music to justify the fact well they can't be any good at it because if they were any good at it they would do it but I think a lot of it does come down to stereotype threat and a lot of it comes down to being um, part of a unwelcoming um, unequal um, environment that is um, basically traditional and it's been, you know, it's been like that a long way and especially in a lot of academia and that, that it's become a very unequal and um, biased environment and you don't want to be, if you're a female producer or technician you don't want to get put on a program saying oh this is a group for female musicians or female um, technicians or that because actually that kind of makes it worse because it makes you feel like you're a charity case and that you're still not welcome yeah yeah I, I understand exactly what you're saying I absolutely do and I, I see I've seen that in you know in the fields that I've worked in mm. so where now you live on the Isle of Wight. Yeah. Um, you're in sort of transition, not only in your, with your sexuality, but also in your work. What 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 are your plans? 
Um, I'm on the waiting list now um, for Tavistock. I've been on the waiting list about a year, so I don't know whether I've probably got another year to wait. But I have found more trans people now that I can relate to. Um, I would like to sort of meet more people who are female to male because I never really, I always thought that I was the only person who felt like this and it's kind of been a revelation now that there are a lot of other people who feel the same way because when I was a teenager I just felt very um, isolated and like I could never really say how I really felt. I had to sort of like pretend that I was the same as everybody else but um, it's really been a revelation now that I've heard other people say the same sort of things as I was saying sort of 20 years ago and I think that there's been maybe a sort of um, hesitance for people to talk about this until recently and now it seems like it is so much easier to talk about things you know it was kind of seen as being heresy if I said oh I don't feel like I should be a woman and there was a lot of things like oh well, if you're a woman you're a life giver and you've got a womb and breasts and you're going to have babies and you're going to and it's all kind of um, romanticised so if you say well, I don't want to do that. It's like heresy. But now I've found out that there's a lot of other people who do feel the same way. But I think for years they've just not been allowed to say it. Mm. So <clears throat> your dad's passed. Mm. You live with your mum now. Mm. Has your mum's attitude changed? Is she is she much more supportive? Is there? Do you have good communications? It's been really really hard for my mum because. I do feel like a felder because she really dearly wanted grandchildren but I couldn't do that just for her and I'm sorry really that I didn't have a brother or a sister who could have given her grandchildren because I I do feel like I have failed her in that but I, I couldn't do something just to please her or just to please somebody else and you know even you know even in the last few years, she said, oh, it's not too late, you could have one and that. But she doesn't realise the implications of it, that that would involve me getting involved with a man and this, that and the other. And, um, you know, basically, one of the things that has made me have to come clean now and come out about being trans and about being asexual is that I realised that I've had some relationships with men under false pretences which were really wrong and were only ever going to hurt myself and hurt other people and I've put myself in some dangerous positions as well with um, men that being maybe leading somebody on and I have been assaulted and I you know I don't like to sort of victim blame myself but I think that I Having relationships with people under false pretenses and giving people the wrong idea is a really wrong thing to do. And I kind of realised this was about six years ago. Um, I had a relationship which I'm always going to feel bad about with a disabled guy. And um, 
from my perspective and I think from his perspective it was going to be okay because he wasn't sexually active and we could have had a asexual relationship but unfortunately there were a lot of other factors and his family were very protective of him and they saw me as a slut who was going to lead him astray and it all turned really nasty and people got hurt and I think well now I need to sort of look after myself first and not sort of think oh I have to because I did feel obligated I did feel obligated in a way to my mum and and the idea that oh you should be married and why aren't you married and why you know and I think after what happened with this person because I was really hurt and I was really upset about it um, I've had to sort of think you know I I'm not really in the right kind of um, mental state to have a relationship at the moment because I don't even know whether I should have a relationship with a man or with a woman or whether I should just be on my own um, I need to sort of look at friendships and that first and try and sort of establish some good friendships but having a relationship under false pretenses is is wrong and it's something I never want to do again so BJ let's hope in, in a year's time you will have got your ultimate dream of having the transition that you you know that was that should have happened many mm. years ago what do you what do you see after that happening what would you you know what would if you woke up in the morning and everything was bright what would what would it be what would your what would your life look like um i would like to sort of start making inroads professionally again into music because I said I'm in, in a sort of grey area and reached a sort of impasse at the moment because I'm not singing at the moment because I've given up all the opera things I want would like to get back into production but I'd like to be welcome I mean even as a trans man I would like to work in an environment where I feel welcome and for so much of my life even like when I was doing electronics at college and when I went to university and that I felt like I'm somebody who is um, wrong and unwelcome and an um, interloper rather than being somebody who's sort of part of the scene. And it's really sort of uncomfortable when you know that that is down to gender or perception of gender because, you know, it's 2019 and I really really thought that we would be over this sort of thing by now but we're not and do you think we've progressed though even if we haven't <laughs> got to the end game which was you know equality for all do you think we're, we're sort of much better because you, you have alluded to there being it being a much more sort of um, yeah well I think accept yeah I think people are allowed to talk now and there's a lot of things now which are coming out in the wash which have been sort of swept under the carpet. I mean, like I said, some of the things that happened at university that I got groomed by a master's student and things like that. Now, I think since Harvey, no, earlier than Harvey Weinstein, since Jimmy Savile, since 2012, it's come out now that a lot of these powerful men in, in the music business and in the entertainment business and in the media, etc., and even in the institutions, have got away with so much. And they've got away with so much um, 
bullying and oppressing and abusing women. And so I would say um, that broke through probably 2012 with the Jimmy Savile thing. And now since Harvey Weinstein and Me Too and that, now people are allowed to talk about things that they've been told not to talk about for years. So that's that's a good thing. So there might be more opportunities that you know that yeah, weren't yeah. open to you before. Yeah, and insofar as transgender awareness, I know that there's still a lot of propaganda and there's still a lot of falsehoods and that, and there's a lot of rubbish that goes around on the internet and that accusing transgender people of child abuse and this, that, and the other, and spreading untruths. But the fact is that now that there are people who are born now who can come out and say, well, actually, I've never felt like I fit into this role. And people are talking now. And I think um, there's a lot of people who think people have been brainwashed into being transgender. There's always been, I think there's always been the same amount of transgender people, but most people have been living in denial. And most people have gone through their whole life living in denial, where they're trying to play a role of being a man or being a woman or being you know, whatever society expects them to be, when they know really that they are, that they don't conform. And this is probably one of the things in other countries and that where, you know, a lot of this is still illegal, but in England now, you know, a lot of people think, oh, there's been this boom in transgender and it must be because there's hormones in the water or it's because people are drinking out of plastic bottles and that no it's not that at all it's because now people can openly talk about something that even like 20 years ago they were told oh you you shouldn't say that and you know like my doctor said oh you're a pretty girl and go and get on with your life and and now i think that the dam has broken a bit and people are allowed to talk about it and that is probably one of the good things that's come out in the last few years. So you've lived the majority of your life apart from university on the Isle of Wight. Mm. How has that been? I think that the Isle of Wight is a very sort of conservative um, area. Um, I mean, conservative socially and politically as well, because remember what the things Andrew Turner said a few years ago. Um, but in the last couple of years, I think that pride has been massive on the island and, and really well appreciated and very well supported. So I think that the Isle of Wight, you know, I think most people kind of think the Isle of Wight is 20 years behind the rest of the country. But I think people here are just starting to talk and starting to be a bit more open about things. And I think it's the new um, Archdeacon, Arch, Arch Canon of the Church of England is, is a married gay man now on the island. So think things here are changing. And how's that been for you in terms of how you think it might have been if you were somewhere else? Um, when I lived in Bognor, I used to go to Brighton a lot and I think Brighton was a lot more um, progressive open, yeah in well that's sort of 10 years ago but I think the Isle of Wight is starting to catch up now mm. and catch up in which way um, be keep an open dialogue and not judge people and allow people to address and express themselves um, in 
the manner that they that they need to. So if there was a before and an after, how would you describe the before? Um, before would be people like that doctor I said, who was, you know, very, very judgmental and mocking and and I said my school counsellor and, you know, the things at school were I think I said this before but yeah, <laughs> section yeah, section twenty eight, yeah. Um but that was a generational thing that was for the whole country. So was that just a sign of the times, do you think? And do you think people think are a lot more informed and educated? I, I, do you know what? I'd say no, because I think most of the teachers who are teaching now were educated under Section 28, and I think that they've still got Section 28 influence, even now. Because that would have been, you know, they would have been at school, and they would have been, you know, probably entered training during the time that Section 28 was... Um, in, act in action, so... Um, so do you I think th they were indoctrinated by Section 28? And they I were think that there's still a legacy of it. Um, nobody was um, taught anything about relationships or, or respect. And um, most of the sort of sex education came from... It was part of your biology um, science coursework. And uh, I think I left school um, believing a lot of things about human biology and human sexuality when really it was about animals. Mm. And there was always the things about the chicken in the egg and, and things about p flowers being pollinated and things. And the stuff that was actually about um, human sex ed, I think, was always about the horrors of pregnancy and I think at that time they were just trying to use this stuff to frighten. I think that they they had a belief that there was a lot of what they used to call like gym slip mothers and um, teenage pregnancies and I think that they used a lot of sex education to frighten kids out of having sex rather than it being taught, rather than, rather than teaching respect and consent they just tried to use a fear factor. And so you think that's changed since the repeal of the Section 28 yeah. and uh, education being a lot more open-minded and uh, based on on the reality of this is how the world is with, with all different types of people? Well, I think a lot of this stuff about campus rape culture and that comes from the problem that they've never um, really taught respect and they've never really taught consent. And if you just sort of treat things as being animalistic and biological and that, they, there's not any respect or consent in it um, because people aren't taught about relationships. They're just taught about sex and what bit goes into what bit and how you make babies. So back to the Isle of Wight because yeah. <laughs> obviously this is an, uh, you know, out, out, on the yeah. out on an island um, project. Is there anything particularly you think is positive um, about being being non non-binary on the island. Um, positive about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, not really. I just sort of hope that the Isle of Wight. You know, I hope that um, whoever our next MP is um, is somebody who's very. Um, open-minded and open to these things and we can get over a lot of the bigotry and a lot of the institutionalised bigotry. I hope that people within the health service can be properly educated um, 
you know, so that they don't ask awkward questions. I would really like it if, you know, the island had its own gender identity clinic because the gender identity clinics like Terrastock have got two year plus waiting lists and um, now there's there's such an influx of people, especially young people who aren't getting um, access to the services. Um, and I think, you know, that needs to be sort of opened up across the board, across the whole um, country. I think that, you know, I, it's quite worrying that I know from other people who are trans um, who have had to sort of educate their doctors themselves and had to sort of explain things to doctors because that hasn't been part of their training. Um, even, you know, triage nurses and people at the hospital and that, they don't know the basics, they don't know, you know, the basic um, terminology or anything. Um, I think that there's got to be a lot more open dialogue on that and a lot more education. So hopefully that's a good thing for the future of the island. So do you think anybody that uh, is 13 or 14, like you were, going to the doctor, they may not they may not have um, a, a medical practitioner that has the terminology, but do you think they would have the the will to help? And and do do you think there there would be a difference in attitude, even if even if in terms of just what they say might be not exactly correct? Do you think their sort of their willingness to help will be would be much more? Yeah, yeah, more so now because I think at the time these people like the doctor I talked about did think that they were helping because they thought that some that somebody being transgender was something that was so deviant it was better for everybody involved if you just ignored it so i think that from their sort of um philosophy they really did think that they were helping but this is why there's been a lot of people now who have had to kind of come back and transition later in life because they were given the wrong information when they were younger but um, I think the problem now is that most of the young sort of 13, 14 year old um, trans people are, have got more education about um, trans um, terminology from YouTube than what they have actually from um, education. So if, if they go to the doctor and the doctor hasn't been trained, you know, they, they're just having to sort of educate their own doctor and tell their own doctor the terminology and tell their own, you know, and it's, it's, I think it's a little bit sad that, that patients are still having to sort of educate their own um, healthcare professionals in mm. the best way that they can look after them because there's a gap in the, in the education of the, of the healthcare professionals. Mm. Mm. I suppose that's, that's, that's always going to be the case when, when you've got such small numbers in comparison to the rest of the population you know you, you you'd always be a minority wouldn't you mm. so perhaps you know that that's that's likely to to happen i don't think the numbers are that small i think that the numbers are larger than what people think that they are but i think there's still a lot of people who um, believe that the best thing to do is to live in denial and not to and it might go away yeah and you know, hope it will go away, and it might be from sort of family pressure, or or religion, or 
um, culture, but I think there's a lot of people who still just sort of think that if you ignore it, it will go away, and then they find out later that it doesn't. Mm. Mm. So, but uh, in the main, you've, you're feeling quite positive that that changes are coming. Yeah, um, yeah, in that, in that sort of, yeah, in in terms of um, awareness. Yeah, I mean, even though the you know, even though there's still a lot of negative stuff and still a lot of propaganda out there. Um, I think in a way at least that is getting people talking because yeah. it, then at least people can refute it um, but it's opened up a dialogue and I think you know some of the very high profile trans people like um, Caitlyn Jenner have done a lot to raise um, awareness and get people talking. Yeah absolutely there are many more high profile people aren't there? Yeah. Mm. Okay, we're coming towards the end of the interview. Are there any other things you'd like to talk about? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know really. Is there anything else you want to ask me? Um, I don't, I can't think of anything. I think we've covered most things. I think we've covered, we've covered quite a bit and it's been very interesting. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I, I just wish you well for, for everything that, you know, possibly Tavistock can bring you know and as soon as possible mm. <laughs> and I'm you know I, I thank you very much for the interview yeah I really you know I, I said about Tavistock I really really hope that there'll be a Southampton GIC or something open soon mm. because of the numbers or because you know people waiting so long and people are being forced to wait so long especially younger people there's a terrible risk of suicide from people being forced to wait yeah. and and also forcing them to wait means that they're going to go on the internet and get um, hormones and get um, things that aren't prescribed to them that could be dangerous so they need to you know start making more access to clinics mm. okay thanks very much thanks Bronwyn and thank you Julian for sharing your story with us it's been enriching and yes, we need more education on trans issues. Learning about the ways in which we are alike and different can help us all be more effective and confident when faced with bias or ignorance and when extending a welcoming hand of friendship and support. Stories like Julian's help us expand our world and helps us better understand the beautiful, complex and diverse aspects of being human. We need to be more visible and vocal. Remember, you are not alone. Follow, subscribe, connect with us. Visit www.outonanisland.co.uk or on social media at outonanislandiw, hashtag Our Stories Matter. Next episode, Melissa Gilmore interviews Caroline Diamond about coming out at an older age, setting up the LGBTQ plus women's group on the Isle of Wight, role models and much, much more. Thank you for listening.